This is episode 190 of The Stem Cell Podcast, Immunology and Podcasts with Drs. Brenda Roud and Jason Goldsmith. Hey everyone, this is Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Do you love the Stem Cell Podcast and want to share it with your peers? Rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app makes it easier for other researchers to find our episodes. Plus, it's a great way for you to let us know what we're doing well and where we can improve. Today, we have a very special episode as we're announcing the launch of the new immunology podcast, a sister podcast to the Stem Cell Podcast. We'll be talking with the two hosts, Dr. Brenda Roud from the Netherlands Cancer Institute and Dr. Jason Goldsmith from Ceres Therapeutics about the podcast as well as their own research leading up to this point. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell, stem cell news coming right up. But first, it's once again time to sell a bright year research. The hashtag stem selfie contest is back. Show the world what stem cell research looks like through your eyes by entering your best cell image at www.stemcell.com slash stem selfie. That's S-T-E-M-C-E-L-L-F-I-E 2021 by April 30th for a chance to win. All right, Arun, I'm going to kick off the roundup today with uh, a big story in the news. It's not exactly like a pluripotent stem cell story, but arguably you could argue, you could make the case it's, it's deeper than that. Um, we're talking about these synthetic cells, which may be, you know, the future stem cell that we can truly make into anything, not just all the cells in the body, but all the cells that you want for anything, to make anything, to do anything. Maybe a bit far-fetched, but we're on the path. This is based on... Uh, pioneering research by Craig Ventner. You rem may remember the name from the Human Genome Product Project. Uh, following the triumph there, um, in collaboration with the NIH, you, you should say, uh, the the Craig Ventner Institute was founded, and there in 2010 they created the first what they called minimal cells. All right, and they started with. Mycoplasma, all right. Mycoplasma, it's it's very very basic. There's mycoplasma that have as few as 525 genes. Uh, that's compared to roughly like 4,000 that you get in the common E. coli that we think is very very basic, um, with our fancy stem cells and mammalian cells. Uh, in 2010, uh, the Ventner Institute. They reported replacing the 985 gene genome of one type of mycoplasma with 901 genes that were completely synthetic, okay? And they dubbed this cell SYN 1.0, of course, 1.0, still the residue of the dot-com era there. But they call this SYN 1.0. And since then, since 2010, they've been removing more and more chunks. And in 2016, they had a SYN 3.0. Of course, that had been knocked, you know, down even more to a more spare version that had only 473 genes, right? But the thing is that this SYN 3.0 was kind of bizarre. Uh, all the cells were misshapen. They were spitting out weird cell-like structures, but no one looked like the other. Um, and the, the conclusions there was like, while this was a basic necessity for replication, it, was, it didn't look like the cells were used to, okay? So step in synthetic biologist uh, Elizabeth Strakowski, who's at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Um, what they reasoned was that maybe why these cells were so fragile and look so banged up is because of the turbulence in the, in the cell culture situation there. So they made uh, these chambers on microfluidic chips that very gently uh, bathed these SYN 3.0 cells. But still, they were all banged up, even with the mild currents. Um, so then they went to this brute force genetic approach and started adding back combinations of genes from all the other SYN cells in the catalog to see which would, you know, rescue, so to speak, uh, cell division. And they first shrank the number of genes that could rescue to 19. And then further, in this cell paper uh, that was recently published, they showed that they could restore normal division by uh, adding back just seven genes. And what I think was really impactful about this story in terms of discovery and, uh, was just the idea of how much we don't know. 
only two of those seven genes were known to play a role in cell division. Um, and the other five were kind of like, huh, what's that about? So I think that this is like a, a really big story on many fronts. One is that we're moving towards this era of cells really doing what we want in a very precise way with a very minimal gene complement. Um, and also, we're, we're learning more every day. I mean, we, we learn more in this one experiment. We, we, we only know two of the seven genes that, that are involved in cell division. So clearly, there's a lot of unknown unknowns out there. Yeah, this is a really fun story. We had Krishan Usaha not too long ago talking about synthetic bio and how it might be leveraged in mammalian systems. Um, but I think the beauty here is this is <laughs> this is brute force science at its best. It's sort of reminiscent of the Yamanaka papers when they're able to really figure out the genes that are causing the, the phenotype here. And here we're talking about the genes that are actually causing the proliferative phenotype and the, the survival phenotype too, right? So I have this vision. I have this vision of a minimalistic bacteria that's all it's able to do is just divide. Divide like crazy, kind of like what you're seeing here. But that the synthetic biocomponent uh, on top of the synthetic biocomponent is that minimalistic bacteria is able to make one protein that you're super interested in. So literally, it's just a workhorse organism that's completely artificial, but very simple, very proliferative, and very powerful. So I'm dreaming, but big dreams, Dale. Big dreams. I mean, I, I feel like that's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, we talk about uh, this programming the cells and the field of T cells. Maybe we could touch on this with our guest today. But yeah, we're moving towards this idea, at least at at the merging of kind of this digital interface with this biological interface. And I can envision a day where it's not just one protein, but you have a whole panoply of little sins that are each doing their own thing under very pre precise control uh, in an integrated way. And I think that's the only way that we're going to approximate the majesty of biology is by, you know, coordinating amongst many small parts. Plug and play synthetic bio. It's a lot of fun. I don't know if you remember that paper that came out a while back where they're able to recreate a, a video, a movie based on the expression of genes that were, you know, from yes. synthetic bacteria or something. That was wild. So this field is absolutely taking off and for good reason. And part of it is because we can leverage CRISPR to manipulate different, you know, uh, organisms the way we want them to and make them really plug and play, right? And CRISPR also plays a big role in the paper that I'm about to talk about, which is coming uh, out of Nature Biomedical Engineering from the labs of Dr. Gary and Dr. Gary, that's Dan Gary and Mary Gary over there at Minnesota. First author is Gunho Meng. And the title of this paper is Humanized Skeletal Muscle in MYF5 slash MyOD slash MYF6 Null Pig Embryos. This is a chimerism story. And if you've been a fan of the podcast for a while now, you know that I love, I love this type of work just because it has such incredible potential. So we're talking about generating potentially humanized skeletal muscle in pigs. Why is this important? Well, as we know, um, unfortunately, skeletal muscle and human skeletal muscle is not always fully regenerative, especially after really bad car accidents, combat, you know, major injuries where you're losing a ton of your skeletal muscle. So we want other sources to replace some of these lost muscles, right? Lost human muscles. Unfortunately, post-mortem human skeletal muscle isn't the most viable. And autologous muscle grafts are not also the, not the easiest thing to do either. So you want a, a ready source of human skeletal muscle that you can use for transplantation purposes. And the Gary labs, they were thinking, all right, we're going to take a unique approach to this. We're going to try to see if we can maybe down the road produce humanized skeletal muscle in pigs. And this is work that's, of course, been promoted and pushed forward in the last 10 years, especially by a bunch of different groups, including Jun Wu, Hiro Nakauchi back in the day at Stanford had that really beautiful uh, mouse, rat, pancreatic 
Timerism paper that came out, uh, I think, almost a decade ago now. But here we're talking about introducing human-induced pluripotent stem cells and also porcine pig blastomeres in pig embryos that are knocked out for these master regulators of skeletal muscle development. So basically pig embryos that are lacking my expression of MYF5, MyOD, and MYF6 through, again, through CRISPR. That was the technology that was able to make this happen. And so after those embryos were nullified for, you know, developing pig skeletal muscle, they were complemented, right? They were complemented through the porcine blastomeres or human iPSCs. And the cool thing about this paper is that some of these embryos, the pig complementation embryos, were carried to term. So they're intra-species chimeras that were viable. So basically one pig with the skeletal muscle of another type of pig. They displayed normal histology, morphology, function. And then the other part of the paper was the, the long-term vision, the long-term study with these early-day human-pig skeletal muscle chimeras. They were generated using TP53 null human iPSCs. They were actually the iPSCs that were complemented into the pig, the, the pig blastocyst. And the chimerism efficiency was pretty good. So they collected the embryos at around day 20 and day 27, and the embryos actually, yeah, they did contain humanized skeletal muscle, again, confirmed through immunofluorescence and different molecular analyses. So it's a it's another chimerism story. Of course, no one's going to carry the human pig chimeras, chimeras to term right now. Obviously, that's ethically charged. That's not going to happen anytime soon. But it's a proof of concept showing that, hey, maybe, maybe way, way down the road, we may be able to generate these pigs with, say, humanized muscle or uh, other groups are working on the heart. Other groups are working on the uh, the pancreas. So I think this is this is a really hot topic in biomedical research. And I think the potential here is unbelievable because we're talking about alleviating the organ shortage crisis, which is apparent across the world. There's a shortage of organs available for transplantation. And this might be a really exciting way to nullify that crisis. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I mean, this is, I'm overwhelmed by just the technical mastery here, just starting from the beginning, you know, in, I guess it's a testament to how refined the tools have become, but you're knocking out three genes, you know, both copy, like that's tough to do. And having that be your starting point, uh, I'm already impressed. But I will say that obviously the skeletal muscle has a lot of stuff in it. So we're not really talking about a direct transplant from a pig anytime soon. We've got to sort out all the other cell types or at least figure out how we can invest them with human cells either at the time or before or after transplant. Um, but I mean, yeah, as you said, this is really impressive and the potential seems limitless. Seems like the Gary Labs are generating a, a legion of humanized pigs over there um, to take over the world, but obviously not. I mean, they're very careful to specify that there was no contribution either to the neural or reproductive tissues in these pig human chimeras. And I think obviously that's, that's a lightning rod. Um, though I, I, I'm just so curious. I, I really would love to know how you integrate something that as, as pervasive as muscle, you know, existing up and down the body throughout the, the Hawks code. If that, if you had a, a pig that had all human muscle, would there be some structural abnormalities? And that's even a, absent a contribution to reproductive tissues or neural tissues. You, you have to wonder with something like that. I mean, what, what would it look like? I think it would be one really wimpy pig. I think that's what it would, would look like. Because, I mean, if you look at me, I'm 125 pounds of pure bone, very little muscle. And if you're going to put my muscle in a pig, that's going to be a really wimpy pig. I'm just saying. Just something to think about. Weak, maybe, but agile. And I wouldn't say weak. You are cut. You're all the muscle anybody needs, Arun. Look at you. I it's appreciate about, that. It's about to be beach time. Get out there with your vaccine. <laughs> Ah, you ain't no pig, though, homie. I'll tell you that much. That's supposed to be a good thing. <laughs> anyway, um, moving on to impressive, impressive models. Uh, this is another impressive model, I should say. This is a story about uh, the eye, really. But when we talk about the eye, everyone's always sweating. 
the RPE, retinal pigment epithelium. It's like there's nothing else in the eye. Well, newsflash, guys. Um, there's also the choriocapillaris, huh? And we'll call that the CC so that I don't screw it up. But the two of those, the RPE and the CC, together, they make up a complex that's called the outer blood retinal barrier, okay? And that's a major conduit uh, for transport of the biological molecules between the retina and the blood, okay? And there's disruptions in this complex are implicated in a lot of macular degenerative diseases, most notably uh, AMD, uh, age-related macular degeneration, which has a huge scope. We're talking like almost 300 million people worldwide in the next decade or so are going to be affected by this, okay? Um, but the pathology of AMD and other macular dystrophies, are, it's not very clear. There's kind of like a chicken or egg question here of whether or not there's these like, is it the deposits, this things, these things, extracellular deposits you call drusen um, that form beneath the RPE layer? Do those cause atrophy of the choriocapillaris, or is it some kind of issue, loss of the fenestrations of the choriocapillaris that lead to RPE dysfunction? And it's tough to even address it, right? Because it's in your head, those eyes. And these, these complexes are not easily uh, investigated. You can't really look into them. And of course, the animal models don't really do the trick. AMD, as you can imagine, develops over long, long time periods. So. In order to address this kind of con conflicting evidence about the directionality of RPECC in uh, the, the etiology of AMD pathology, uh, Rushira Singh from the U University of Rochester um, looked into this by creating this uh, human-induced pluripotent cell model that is made up of all the components of the complex, which are namely RPE, uh, as well as endothelial cells and mesenchymal cells, essentially creating a vascular network as well as RPE. But it's not just basic endothelial vascular bed here. The choriocapillaris, cor see, I screwed it up, is actually very specific. It has a very specific ar architecture in the fenestrations, et cetera. Okay, but the current models, they really can't get at it. Um, so they made this model. They integrated the RPE, ECs, and MSCs, and these structures that are actually really quite beautiful, beautiful, um, integrating with hydrogel in this engineering approach um, to make this IPSC-derived RPE-CC model, uh, and used it to show that it's uh, factors that are derived from both the retinal pigments epithelium as well as mesenchyme that uh, are required for, the, for that formation of the fenestrated CC. You know, that specific anatomy of the CC, it's dependent on the secreted factors from the RPE and mesenchymal cells, as well as showing that um, the atrophy of the choriocapillaris, I said it, um, it can be initiated either uh, locally by mutant factors that come from the RPE, or by patient serum. I should say this is they looked at IPS cells from healthy patients as well as, as well as those that had AMD and they kind of traced it back to the serum factors as well as mutant factors from the RPE and those affected patients. And then finally, they, they identified and I'll tack on there um, with mechanistic uh, approaches to show that FGF signaling as well as MMP signaling may be targeted uh, in AMD to, to reduce the disease burden. So it was, it was a lot of things in one. Uh, I mean, all towards this, this model, maybe a bit far flung, but uh, I would say it's a, it's a really nice new model. I mean, no one talks about the choriocapillaris. We've been talking about the RPE since the beginning. So credit to uh, the Sing Lab and all their hard work. Choriocapillaris, you're saying it? I can't spell it, so don't ask me to spell it. But yes, it's a very exciting new study that's incorporating tissue engineering and really, again, reflecting the power of vascularization and taking some of these models to the next level. There are a few limitations here. I mean, it was a beautiful system. Uh, there are way more cell types that are found in the eye as opposed to just these RPE cells and, you know, these limited cell types that we always talk about, like the RPE. So it's a good start, but can't wait to see their, their next iteration of this as well. Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, I would say most notably, you got to talk about the immune system, right? When you're talking about anything, uh, 
anything, period. But uh, I think particularly in, in the eye where you have one, like accumulations, uh, like the drusen, um, these extracellular deposits, what's the role of the immune system in not clearing those perhaps, as well as maybe some inflammatory processes. So I agree with you. We got to add more cells, but um, you know, we're getting there. You're coming with the mal the pigs with the weak weak muscles, uh, but they you know they don't exactly have human endothelium in there, do they, Arun? So you you got to take what you can get these days, and it keeps getting more full. The picture and the cells that are being integrated here um, are more impressive with each story. That's right. It ain't perfect, but these models are definitely definitely getting better. And speaking of an amazing new model system. We're talking about, of course, organoids. We've got to talk about organoids once on the show. And we're talking about a paper coming from a former podcast guest, Dr. Madeline Lancaster. It's a cell paper that's sort of an evo-devo kind of story looking at uh, basically why humans have big brains to compensate for the wimpy <laughs> muscles that I was talking about, right? Maybe that's part of it. So the title of the paper is An Early Cell Shape Transition Drives Evolutionary Expansion of the human forebrain. This is a really neat study because Dr. Lancaster's group was basically making cerebral organoids from humans and from other great apes like chimps and gorillas, I believe. And their group was able to show that really simply the human cortical organoids are just bigger. They're bigger and that's perhaps a reflection of the developmental processes that are leading to bigger human brains. In a nutshell, they're able to show that there's a shape change that actually occurs in the neural progenitors in all human ape, um, you know, developing organoids and you know, differentiating neurons. And it's the timing of this process of when these neural progenitors actually slow down and stop dividing that may actually contribute to the size of human brains and human cortical organoids. So basically, there's this regulator ZEB2. And when this ZEB2 regulator is turned on, it's a, it's a gene that's turned on during neural differentiation. When this is turned on, this is when the neural progenitors actually start to slow down in their proliferation. And the thing is, ZEB2 is apparently turned on later during the neural differentiation in the human cortical organoids. And that's why the human progenitors are able to proliferate like crazy ultimately leading to more neurons and ultimately leading to a bigger cortical organoid. And they're saying, they're saying that maybe that's why human brains are bigger too in comparison to the, the ape and the, the chimp. Of course, it's, it's a bit of a stretch. We're talking about cerebral organoids and it's an in vitro system and we're trying to extrapolate that to the size of the true human brain. But, you know, we're not this is, you know, it's the coolest model system that we've got available and a very useful model system that we have available that can actually interrogate some of these things. So it's it's obviously very tough to get primary human cortical tissue to do an experiment like this. So you got to resort to the developmental cortical organoid, the workhorse of the Lancaster lab, which has been on absolute tear this year. Think about all the papers from the Lancaster lab that we've covered, covid choroid plexus organoids, the intersection of COVID and or choroid plexus organoids, a little bit of everything. So congrats again, Dr. Lancaster, for this amazing work. Killing it. Mm -hmm. But uh, I guess you could credit her with inventing the organoids. So, um, you know, the returns have been due for some time now. I, I, I agree that this is uh, as, as good as we can do with our model systems. And I'm sure Madeline would agree that there are some limitations that, that, you know, you can't get around because we can't get into human or really, I think, even primate brains in a way that, that seems ethical or in line with IACUC regulations. But, I mean, I'm waiting to see, because I'm sure it'll be any, any time now, some animal studies that really single out this gene. Because, I mean, one criticism or argument that you might make is that Zeb1, as you were kind of alluding to, uh, has a role in vitro in organoids. I mean, you look at these pictures, it's really impressive because it's like, look at those big organoids and look at those smaller organoids between the primate and the uh, human. I just can't wait to see how the experiments where in mouse likely uh, they'll be modulating the timing of expression 
of Zab1 and seeing if it actually in vivo contributes to some kind of alteration in, in brain size, at least in embryonic stages. I'm not saying we should let these things go to term. I'm sure people will be freaking out about humanish brains in a mouse, but at least at embryonic stages, we could see if there's an acute effect of just stretching out the Zeb1 a little bit in the mouse. Although that said, I have no idea when it's expressed in the mouse, so I guess we got to start there. Humanish brains in a mouse or wimpy human muscles in a pig. <laughs> there are certainly limitations to all these model systems as we've discussed. And as you mentioned, one limitation here is the cell types and the fact that there's no immune component here. And speaking of immunology, Daylon. Yes, speaking of immunology, we've got a really lively and fun discussion coming right up with Brenda and Jason. But before we get to that, I have a quick message from Stem Cells. Explore scientific resources for your immunology research at the Stem Cell Technologies Immunology Learning Center. Choose from different research areas and find expert interviews, technical tips, educational webinars, instructional videos, and much more. Visit www.stemcell.com slash immunology dash research for more information. All right, guys, we have the pleasure this episode of serving as a kind of segue launch of a sister podcast, the Immunology Podcast, uh, which will be coming to you soon. Today, we're interviewing the two co-hosts of that podcast, Dr. Brenda Roud, who's a postdoctoral research fellow in the laboratory of Dr. John Hannon at the Netherlands Cancer Institute. Brenda is interested in the role of lymphocytes in the immune response against cancer and developing therapies which harness the power of T-cells to treat a range of solid tumors. Also, we're talking with Dr. Jason Goldsmith, who's the Director of Donor Medical Sciences, Sciences at Ceres Therapeutics. Uh, Ceres Therapeutics is a biotechnology company working to revolutionize treatment of a wide range of diseases by modulating the function of the human microbiome. These two are on the podcast to talk about their research, but really, they're here to talk about another podcast, I feel. But uh, we'll get to all that in a minute. You two guys, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure. All right. Uh, let's jump right in. Uh, Brenda, let's start with you. You have pretty recently finished your doctoral training and are representing the youth here. No offense to you, Arun, but, you know, you're coming with the dad jokes recently since you had that kid. So you're no longer <laughs> amongst the youth. Uh, but Brenda, yeah, you speak six languages, originally from Argentina, but you've been all over. Uh, and here you are starting a podcast, but you could probably also do whatever the hell else you want with the rest of your life because you're young. The future is bright. What has drawn you to cancer immunotherapy in the Hannon Group at the Netherlands Cancer Institute? Tell us about that. Well, um, since I started working in the immunology field for my PhD, I just got to the realization that T cells, T lymphocytes, are the best cell in the whole wide world. <laughs> and that uh, immunotherapy is the future of cancer therapy. So the answer for me was pretty clear. There's nowhere else to go. Uh, but now, so I really, as I did my PhD also on, on, on T cells, on the metabolic characteristics of, of CD4 T cells, and I, although I really enjoyed it and I worked uh, a lot and I had a lot of experience mostly with mice and mouse models, I really wanted to work on something more translational. And I found the opportunity to, to move on to cancer research and immunotherapy and adoptive cell therapy using uh, T cells to fight tumors and uh, modify them and, and uh, kind of load them. Uh, to be better at it. And I think that's really a fascinating topic. Yeah, it's such a promising area of study and super popular these days too. And there's so much money flowing into the field as well. So many different startups in the in immunotherapy. And I mean, a lot has been said about how T-cell-based immunotherapy has revolutionized our treatment of liquid tumors in particular, like leukemias, cancers of the blood. But targeting solid tumors with T-cells is really that next big step, right? So tell us a little bit more about the solid tumor side of things and how close immunology is as a field to making solid tumor immunotherapy kind of on par with the liquid tumor side of things. 
Well, I would say that certain tumors, such as melanoma, have the treatment of them have been absolutely revolutionized by the use of immunotherapy, checkpoint inhibition, CTLA-4 antibodies, PD-1 inhibition. It is it has really been a game changer. And the, the survival rate for these tumors uh, came from like 5% to 50%. Uh, and now they are slowly becoming standard therapy for, for these types of very uh, mutated tumors. I think now the next frontier is targeting the other tumors that are not as responsive initially, but there's so much work trying to look at the details and finding combinations of treatments and different types of immunotherapy, not only checkpoint inhibition, but also other targeted immunotherapies. And what we do, which is adopted cell transfer, for example, using tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, we have a phase three trial, uh, hopefully close to ending, in which we have witnessed amazing, amazing uh, effects of activating the tumors, that you, the T-cells that you find in the tumors, you activate them ex vivo, you expand them for a couple of weeks, and then you put them back. And some, some of the patients respond in ways that you would have never imagined. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially in the last five years, some of these advances that you're talking about have really taken the field by storm. And as I alluded to, a lot of startups that are, you know, coming about focusing on this area. And Jason, you're actually focused and have recently joined one of these startups. You're a physician scientist, first and foremost. You actually did your MD-PhD at UNC Chapel Hill at the same time that I was actually doing my undergrad at Duke just down the road. I hope we can still be friends, even though there's that Duke-UNC thing that's going on. And I know Daylon, he's got a bit of a history as well. But no friends. We'll keep it, we'll keep it civil for now. <laughs> but after leaving North Carolina, you did a postdoc in the lab of Dr. Yuhad Chen studying intestinal immunity, right? But recently, you've actually decided to make a jump to biotech, like I alluded to joining Series Therapeutics in Boston as their Director of Donor Medical Science. And to be honest with you, we haven't had a ton of biotech guests on the show, so tell us more about your path and why you actually decided to make this most recent jump to Series. Sure. So I, I will say, you know, first off, I forgive you for going to Durham City College. It's okay. <laughs> Come um, on, man. <laughs> I, ha I had to. Um, but no, seriously, uh, so my path, you know, it looks like it's a straight line, but it's actually been quite uh, – the uh, roller coaster of experience. So I got involved with uh, gut work in general because I developed colitis actually in college. And so then when being interested in biotechnology and biochemistry and everything, I ended up at UNC doing an MD-PhD with Christian Jobin, kind of studying the intersection of the microbiome, immunology, and, uh, and regeneration. So I've always kind of sat on this intersection of the processes that cause the gut to regenerate or respond to the immune system, and kind of looking at that interplay between the bugs, the epithelium, and the immune system. And then at any given point, kind of focusing on one or more of the others. And then so after I did uh, my training there, I ended up in Michigan for a couple of years where I did residency, but ended up I really, I was much more um, research inclined, although I do practice a little bit. And so I ended up moving when my wife wife moved to Pennsylvania for her job. I, I went with her and then started a postdoc. And then I had been straight and narrow on the academic path until COVID hit in actuality. And then in the process of when COVID hit and uh, my research being paused and then my um, PI uh, deciding to suddenly leave in, in late October of 2020 um, to, to go uh, run a uh, a research group uh, back where he was from in China. Uh, I was kind of trying to figure out what to do with my life. And so I had some options to kind of stay in academia, but I'd always been very much of a, a I want to get something into people person as, as fast as humanly possible. And Penn's a great place to do it. You could kind of see how uh, with people like Carl June and the gene therapy program, how if you have a clinical infrastructure uh, in place, you can do biotech in academia, but that didn't really exist for the gut. And then by fluke, a recruiter contacted me for this job. And while being a postdoc at Penn, I had a background of being a medical director of a plasma center, um, which is where you collect plasma from people to convert it into drug products like Alumin, IPIG, all these things that we use all the time. And so because of my background in host microbiome interactions and gut generally, and my plasma background, this company contacted me and it ended up being the perfect opportunity. And I jumped 
Um, the irony, of course, is I found out within the last month I both got the K I applied for and the AGA Research Scholarship I had applied for. The hmm. RSA, I would have had both grants. But I mean, in the end, it's kind of great knowing you got that, but I'm really enjoying what I'm doing because the way biotech is structured, if you're in the right spot, you can, you can drive you know, those discoveries that academia and biotech make into people. And that's really where my passion has been. It's why I kind of took up the clinical side of things was to see it in people. So that's where I ended up is, is doing that. That's been great. So, wow, that's a good story. Uh, I want to dig a little deeper into the series side of that, where you are now and really into the concept and the development of these microbiome therapeutics. You know, I feel like the memo on microbiome has been thoroughly circulated in, in pop culture. I mean, at least in Brooklyn, where I live, we're all talking about probiotics, you know, going to the grocery store, jumping out of you. Here's some probiotics. My wife, she's very vigilant about antibiotics, but it's not about antibiotic resistance. It's about sparing her microbiome. All right. Um, notwithstanding the widespread coverage of fecal transplants, um, though, I think that the scope and impact of microbiome therapeutics is really underappreciated, you know? Like, yeah, the fecal transplant, it's a headline grabber, right? But, like, it's a lot deeper than that. There's a lot more to it than that, and the science is, like, very strong and well-established. Can you give us an idea of some of the near and long-term potential of these microbiome therapeutics um, and go in maybe a little bit more depth about what your role is there as a director of, of donor medical science. Sure. So um, to, to kind of start out, the microbiome field actually I think is actually still pretty nascent because we have really begun to appreciate that it's its own organ, right, in a way. It, 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 it's its own symbiotic relationship with the rest of our body, and we're seeing that the microbiome and its composition can affect all types of things, whether this be obesity, whether it's your immune tolerance, so your predisposition to colitis and Crohn's, your uh, predisposition to asthma, it affects your pain sensitivity and your sense, you know, so your nociception, how much pain you feel is partially dependent on your microbiome. And then to link into immunology even more and immunotherapy, it can, the microbiome can actually affect the metabolism of chemotherapy and also affect the host's immune response to tumors. And so they found even in some cases, FMT can alter the response to uh, PD-1 blockaders. And so good versus, you know, responder versus non-responder patients for PD-1 blockade for immunotherapy, you can divide them by their microbial composition because the microbiome has trained the host immune system in those two different groups to respond to tumors differently. And so we're starting to really realize this. So what does this mean clinically? and where biotech is at. It, it's an open field and it's kind of an exciting time. Ceres claim to fame is that we've really developed technology to work and use spores. So bacteria can exist either as vegetative bugs with kind of growing or go into the spore form. The most famous spore, of course, is C. diff, uh, but there's also healthy spores. And so FMT has a lot of barriers. That's that fecal microbial transplant because you're basically taking stool from people and you can screen them to be as healthy as possible but they could still have drug-resistant bacteria, which has in fact led to several deaths in FMT procedures. Uh, they could still have other infectious agents that you can't know about that you then transplant and you hope for the best. Um, series of claim to fame is that we have processes that are much safer. We take donor stool and we process it into spores and do a bunch of other steps to basically get rid of a lot of the concern for pathogens. And so it's a concentrated spore formulation. And so that's the first product where our phase three trial is done, it's out there. Uh, we're getting more safety database. So a second open label study the FDA wants just to enroll people. They all get the drug, make sure, you know, do a double quadruple check that it's safe, which it is. And then we're gonna go for our FDA license called the BLA. Um, but, but so that's where it first is gonna be a C diff. It's gonna work, so Ceres and other companies that we compete with are trying to replace FMT with a process by where you take the stool you do some stuff to it, and then you give it to people. And so that allows an FDA-regulated product that is a medication, whereas FMT right now isn't, and it's a procedure. Hmm. And then we've seen it maybe work in colitis and Crohn's, but it's been very inconsistent. And so can Ceres, when we, you know, we have 
phase two studies going on now. We put phase one out was in gastro, looking pretty successful. Can we treat colitis with an FMT-like product, with a series product that is, again, derived from donors? And then next generation stuff is, can we actually pull off bugs off a shelf, given what we've learned about these donor-derived products, and predict what's going to work and then make drugs? And so we have second-generation products for C. diff and colitis, and then we're also looking at things like graft-versus-host disease, which is regulated by the microbiome and treating that, and then uh, immunotherapy as well. So that's kind of the big portfolio. Hmm. Um, I think you were going to ask a question already. No, no, no. Just excited about spores for the betterment of humanity. That's pretty cool. Not something you hear about every day. And I mean, that's part of the reason I'm so excited about immunology, also part of the reason I'm kind of scared about it, is uh, it intersects with so many different fields, right? Like immunology intersects with the microbiome, like what you're working on, Jason. It intersects with stem cell biology, like iPS-derived CAR T-cells, for example. And we've seen in the pandemic how it's intersected with COVID and virology. And Brenda, you're all about T-cells, right? So you're actually working at the intersection of immunology and metabolism. So there's a lot we don't really know about how T-cells are influenced by their metabolism and how their metabolism can influence their differentiation and their function too. So you've actually recently focused some of your work on this and published a paper in Cell Metabolism looking at T-cell metabolism and how it's influenced by genetics like the gene CPT1A and also drugs too like Atoxamir. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about this work and how metabolism is, right? We're talking about the intersection of immunology with so many different fields, but metabolism is another really hot topic right now. So tell us about metabolic regulation of T-cell function and how you might be able to manipulate it to make T-cells behave the way you want them to. Yeah, as you said, uh, T-cell metabolism and immunometabolism in general have been fields that have been uh, really recently become very popular. And in the case of T-cells, so all there's, there's Metabolism, of course, is something that every cell has. And, but in the case of T cells, I really find them very specific uh, case studies because one of the characteristics of T cells is that they live most of their lives as this kind of quiescent entities. They are mostly uh, very, rather inactive, rather uh, have a relatively low basal metabolism. And they just spend their time looking and waiting for their time to shine. And when they do get activated, when they do get exposed to the antigen they're specific against, or you act, or you take them on, you activate them with some uh, specific stimuli, they have to very, very quickly re revamp their whole metabolism in order to sustain a accelerated program of growth of protein production, of uh, DNA synthesis, of lipid synthesis to support their function, which is to very, very quickly multiply, find, move, find their target, and act accordingly. And this is really non-trivial, and a lot of the uh, metabolic pathways that have been studied in the process of T-cell activation and T-cell survival are also similar to pathways that are found in cancer cells and are similar to the pathways that cancer cells use to also multiply and uh, sustain their, their, their health throughout several generations. And what is very interesting is trying to understand what are specific metabolic conditions, metabolic cues, metabolic environments that will either preclude or uh, stimulate the function of T cells or will in a way or another influence their, their, their profile. And this is very clear in the case of, for example, cytotoxic T cells. They need specific activations of of, of certain pathways, very famous are, I think, very common also for cancer, uh, mTOR pathways, AKT pathways that really ramp up metabolism. And then in the case of CD4 cells that have this very wide uh, range of, of identities, you know, these different types of helper T cells, there's also some evidence that shows that Specific types of cells are associated with specific metabolic requirements that might have to do with the places where they have evolutionarily um, 
evolved to to act, where whether the kinds of pathogens they are meant to to find or to to respond to, or also the the location, uh, T cells that are in the spleen or are in the in the bloodstream find themselves in very different conditions to cells that are on the skin, inside the skin or are within the 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 dermis or within the the layers the outer layers of the of the intestine so it is extremely extremely complex and often really hard to 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 pinpoint specifics uh specific pathways because everything is really related to each other so during my work i i focused on one of the pathways which is uh fatty acid oxidation and fatty acid synthesis and how this two in principle uh op- post um, pathways are, are related to T-cell identity and how they sustain T-cell um, proliferation and T-cell differentiation. I think that in the future, there's a lot to do about understanding how your, also your own metabolism in the sense of your diet and the kinds of nu- nutrients that you consume can also influence the uh, training of your immune system, their response, how by generating by uh, in modulating uh, nutrition or, for example, reducing certain the intake of certain nutrients, we can um, prevent anti, anti, we can prevent inflammation or reduce uh, certain diseases that have to do with activation of the immune system or improve the response against cancer. So it's, it's really a very interesting uh, new, area of study that uh it will probably only grow as time goes on yeah because it's so i mean it's funny because immunology is booming or immunotherapy at least and metabolism is booming at the same time so immunometabolism there you go um and i i said it earlier that it's also in our in our like pop culture Uh, i think the lay person is aware of it as you were alluding to right there because of how diet affects their personal health um, and so I wonder, you know, given the centrality of metabolism to immuno, immune, immune function, healthy immune function, as well as like immunotherapies, presumably, um, and their efficacy, like, does it complicate the studies? You know, we're looking in mice, obviously, all this stuff, which is really confounding. But like, particularly when we were targeting these diseases of the first world that are really complicated by the first world diet right? Um, which is a ongoing health catastrophe of its own. Um, do you think, I mean, you were pr- pretty much saying it, but could you maybe drill down a little bit on how, you know, the prevalence of obesity, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, um, what the potential impact uh, of that is maybe even on like specifically with cancer, because that's what you study, like natural surveillance maybe of cancer. Is there any implication there? Or will it undermine the therapies? Will the therapies be less effective in the, the fat Americans? I be honest, I do not have. There's a lot of studies correlating or trying to find the effect of high-fat diets, or for example, abdominal fat. We know that that abdominal fat is basically an immune organ. The production of cytokines and uh, inflammatory uh, signaling is very strong from fat, particularly uh, abdominal fat. And I don't know, it's really hard to tell because often the, the, what you see in mice is not necessarily translatable to the human's condition. And making clinical trials in humans in this area is very hard. And often the, the, the differences are very small. And it's very difficult to, to generate really good, clear-cut results from human studies. I think from mice in general, I have, cannot tell exactly what the, what the um, opinion is at the moment, whether fat mice don't respond to immunotherapy or respond worse to, to cancer. But in general, dysregulation of the immune system is a consequence of obesity inflammation low grade inflammation is a cause it is caused by by obesity by high fat diets by high sugar diets and that actually has also i would say implication when it comes to diabetes diabetes is an 
autoimmune disease, so also rheumatoid arthritis, mm. also having low-key inflammation persistent for years and years, we know that that really gets, uh, takes a toll on, on overall health because the immune system really affects every organ in our body. And also, on the other hand, we know that, for example, certain diet compositions and, for example, the famous the fiber that you consume, also the, the, gener- the digestion of this fiber by the bacteria in your gut generates small, for example, small fatty acids that seem to to signal to your immune system anti-inflammatory signals. And so it is really complex. And I think only now with all the, the technology that we have that we can look, so, so proteomics, metabolomics really allow us to look deep down and find the small differences that before were really hard to tell and try to make correlations between the the, the, the kind of metabolites that you find and what are, how the cells are consuming and how the cells respond to them. Mm. But I don't think the last, the last has been spoken about that. I think it's still a very relatively young uh, field. It's not, we're not in time to give specific opinion about this, but definitely obesity le- leads to inflammation. And that's kind of the start of a whole other immune uh, mm. problem. It's complex. Immunology is complex. Immunometabolism is complex. I don't envy you guys. Like I, <laughs> like I mentioned before, I'm kind of scared of immunology. Like I don't know all the different cell types that are found in the blood. There's so many of them. I'm a simple stem cell biologist, and Dalen and I won't pretend to be immunologists. Although as a blood guy, I think Dalen is probably a little bit more comfortable about the field than I am, right? And to be honest with you, immunology is one of those fields that I'm really intimidated by, as I've mentioned, because it is so complex, like you mentioned, Brenda, with all the different cell types in the blood, the interplay with the genetics, the environment, the metabolism, like we're just talking about, dictating the immune response and everything else, right? We've seen that complexity manifest during the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Where some people are asymptomatic after getting infected by the virus and other people have these huge immune responses that can lead to respiratory overload too, right? And then there's also the vaccines where some people like myself have fevers and are out of commission for days after getting the vaccine where other people just have a sore arm, right? So Jason, we'll ask you this one. As a clinician, how do you think the pandemic has influenced immunology as a whole and the public perception of the field? Do you think the public has more of an appreciation of the field in spite of how complex it is, like we've been talking about? Oh, geez, that's a big one. So I empathize with this, having been on the front lines of COVID, treating people in hospitals quite a bit. And then uh, that's how I got involved in podcasting, actually, was going on as a guest that then led to me doing this um, and applying for this position. But uh, it's complex. So I think if we parse out the politics of it and put that aside where some people, you know, hate what the immunologists say, some people love it because of the political flavor and just look at it overall, I think it's done a couple things. One, it's shown how, as you mentioned, how complex immunology is. And in the process of showing the complexity, it's done two things. One, it's shown how if we quickly respond, we actually have pretty strong understanding of basic immunology to the point that we can make a vaccine really damn quick. Like, and we could do that, especially with modern molecular biology techniques like we see with mRNA and adenoviral um, technologies that are being used. But it also shows how little we understand in other ways. And so then the public gets confused because we'll have people put up preprints and then those preprints will contradict papers that are put up for real later, which will then contradict later preprints or papers put up. And so I think the public seen the sausage being made and I'm not sure if that's good or not, but it's happened. And so I think there's an appreciation of the complexity. I think the challenges of communicating it. So like, as you mentioned, with people with with COVID, some people respond, some people get really sick, some people don't. Why? And there's a lot of hypotheses out there. My personal favorite one is that there's a lot of kids based in other coronaviruses that cross develop cross-reactive immunity. And so parents of kids bathed in coronaviruses, like myself, Maybe you soon, everyone sounds like you, and maybe Daylon, you know, you're, you're surrounded by snotty kids at some age, and so it got sick a bunch. And so there's some level of probably partial immunity. 
that occurs where you just don't get as sick. And then there's also these concepts of immune priming. So maybe you've been exposed to antigens that make you have an oversensitive response to COVID, or you have medical conditions, which make you have a stronger immune response. And so you get those nasty cytokine storms and then the blood clotting and stuff that leads to clinical degradation. So I think in, in summary, it's really shown that for this one pathogen, if the world looked at it, if the world looked at influenza or the common cold or anything, chicken pox, the way we've looked at COVID, we would realize how little we understand about most of these viruses. And yet we also understand how much we know about the basic processes because we could, you know, defeat them and make vaccines and treat them. But we still don't understand a lot of this, of, of what they do in our bodies and how our body really responds to them to the point of like why person A versus person B has a difference. We can talk about the cytokines and the inflammation response and when it goes bad, what's happening, but not why there's a heterogeneity. And so I think immune heterogeneity um, is, is clearly like one of the biggest uh, frontiers in immunology. We know it's there. We know people, some people have autoimmune conditions, some people are immunosuppressed, some people respond differently, whether it's to cancer or to COVID. But what drives that heterogeneity is like the 30,000 foot view question that I think that that's really, we could answer that. We would answer a lot about the field of generally in all these sub areas. But we're poised, right? I mean, this is, it's, it's an exciting time as, as dreadful as it is. Uh, but as a scientist, as an immunologist, you guys must be really excited to be here in this moment in your careers where like you were saying, like we've never looked at something like this. We've never looked with the degree of resolution and it sheds light on everything we didn't know about everything else before. Like we're learning a ton about flu just based on the practices that we've taken on to account for a corona. So, I mean, it's a very exciting time for both of you and it's exciting for all the immunologists out there. All right. And so it's a great time to be launching this new immunology podcast. You guys really have your fingers on the pulse. Uh, tell us, what, what drew you to the opportunity and what do you hope to accomplish with it? And why should the listeners be tuning in? Brenda, you start. I think that this, besides being all very interested about immunology and really enjoying scientific discussions, uh, Picking at the complexity and trying to uh, share uh, the experience of really scratching your head, trying to understand how something came to be. I am a sucker for podcasts. <laughs> and really, when the opportunity came up to do both things at the same time, I, I just had to apply. Um, I have many of my friends uh, telling me that if you had a podcast, I would listen to it because I also really like stories and I like sharing stories. And so I would say that this podcast is kind of stories of science that I would like to, to share, to be a part of. And what I would hope to accomplish is, of course, give me a great excuse to just read papers and talk about them and get getting people to listen to that getting to meet so many interesting researchers throughout immunology and also expanding my horizons because as a, as a T-cell immunologist on kind of a um, hamster wheel of science, I really need to focus most of my time, most of it, what I read is focused on T-cell immunology. So this gives me the perfect excuse to kind of fly free and uh, be more exposed to other parts of immunology, which is such a large field. And I find that very interesting. We already made some of the interviews, and it's fascinating to have people talking about their areas and realizing how little you know. So I hope that uh, the listeners of, uh, of our podcast would also benefit from that, exposing themselves to a wide range of immunology research, getting to know other uh, the, the names in the field, getting to know what people do and how they reach their their where they are uh, w throughout the world. So I think that's basically um, that's basically what I'm looking for. I'm trying to share share the love. <laughs> you sold me right there. I'm subscribing as we talk. 
Uh, Jason, how about you? Good question. So I got involved with this in a very roundabout way to start with, like why I decided to apply for this position, which is uh, when COVID hit, I'd already been involved in, of all things, a martial arts fraud investigation website uh, called Bullshito, uh, which you can guess what the name implies. And that website over time moved more. We kind of completed our mission. I'd been involved in it since like 2006 and uh, kind of completed the uh, fraud side of martial arts because that's really died down in the modern era, but moved on to general science skepticism. And so I had skepticism. And so I'd been on there uh, once to talk about uh, diet and health generally and, you know, kind of debunking some fads. And then when COVID hit, I got pulled on three times in the course of about once every three months to really kind of be boots on the ground, explaining the science and the medicine behind what's going on, you know, some of the similar things we were just talking about. And then I kind of realized I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed being able to talk about science to a larger audience and communicate things. And so when this opportunity came up, uh, I was drawn to it because immunology, as we've been discussing, is super complex. Um, it's confusing even for scientists sometimes because, they, you know, to be honest, you know, labeling things CD and then a number and then trying to use that to describe something isn't the easiest way to communicate about a cell. And then when you have 500 flavors of T cells on top of that, it gets very complex very quickly. And so I, I was really interested in being able to take some of my experiences I had in this other realm of podcasting and be able to see if I could make a dent and really kind of make immunology accessible to a larger audience of scientists and, you know, be able to have interesting conversations with immunologists and then present it in a way that broadens the appreciation and understanding of the field at a time when we've just learned how flippant important immunology is to the health of everyone. Mm. And so, and so and that's why I ended up, you know, said, oh, sure, heck, I'll apply for it. We'll see if I get it. Uh, who knows? And here I am. It's been great so far. It's going to be a lot of fun. Immunology podcast is starting up at the end of March, and you've got listeners number one and two right here. So thank you so much, Brenda and Jason, for joining us here today, sharing a little bit about your expertise and your passion for the field, which is so evident just by talking to you guys. And before we let you go, we're going to ask you some science peripheral questions that we'd like to ask here on the show. So Brenda, we'll start off with you. If you could answer any single scientific question, regardless of your expertise or your chosen field, what would that be? Well, as a kid, I was very, very uh, passionate about astronomy. I think it was just fascinated about the outer space and what's beyond what we see. And I think that, so from that, one question I would really, really want to know is, how does intelligent life look somewhere else? Mm -hmm. I think I have a kind of a Carl Sagan uh, little voice inside my head that always wonders what is beyond. So that would be something really cool to know. Yeah, I think you're my new best friend, Brenda. I also have a huge passion for astronomy. Heart, heart emoji. Yes, indeed. Yes, you know, maybe you can send some T-cells into space to the space station. Hey, I sent stem cells to the space station, so why not? Lucky so, you. Lucky me, I know. Hoping to do it again, fingers crossed. So Jason, up next. If you were not a scientist, what would you be? So I have to couch this, but I'm going to exclude physician as well because I obviously couldn't decide. <laughs> Right. So I spent way too long in school. Uh, so if I wasn't either of those, I'd actually probably be a, a game designer, which is now my hobby. Uh, so developing, you know, pen and paper RPGs like Dungeons and Dragons or uh, big giant board games and stuff. I do it as a hobby now, uh, very part time. But I would, uh, you know, I'd probably pursue that maybe more full time. They just unleash all of the nerddom within me. <laughs> My man, you can converge that with some kind of, I know they have this game, uh, the pandemic game that I was playing with my kids. I mean, I wouldn't recommend it. It's fine. But you could bring in some d and I would play that, homie. Make it happen. Oh, yeah. A cytokines and storms or something. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Uh, this has uh, been entertaining on so many fronts, getting to know you guys. And uh, we're really excited to get to hear you guys on this new podcast. And we invite our listeners to uh you know tune in as well these guys know what they're doing and they'll open up a whole new world for you um thanks for tuning in and thanks for being our guests guys thank you for having us thank you for having us all right fellas that brings us to the end of this episode don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes including an episode summary 
and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. We've got another episode in a couple weeks. Tune in for that. But more importantly, we've got this sister podcast, the Immunology Podcast. You just heard from the hosts. You should tune in to their first episode and all the ones after that. It's going to be a lot of fun. They're going to be doing some of the same stuff, but their own thing as well. I personally can't wait to hear the first one. Tune in, guys. 